Well, Julie, thank you so much for taking time for this. I really appreciate it. We're so excited to have you um, join us for this interview. Um, as we start, can you maybe talk a little bit about your current role and your background? Yes, I am the Senior Director for Cybersecurity Strategy at GlaxoSmithKline Consumer Healthcare. And uh, my background is, is variable. Um, I started off in clinical laboratory science and technology in the Navy, active duty, and also did some reserve time. Um, I, I decided that I wanted a change. Um, so I went back to school for business and I, I still was wondering. Um, I had a, a few um, medical adjacent roles, for example, um, delivering continuing medical education for physicians for a major healthcare company in Northern Virginia. Um, I even uh, served three years as a defense contractor with L3, um, doing various project and program man management roles there. Mm -hmm. But once I joined the FBI, that's when I got mentored into the cyber and it was really exciting. It was an amazing opportunity and I will forever be grateful for it. Um, I was at the FBI for 13 years I've done a number of cool things, such as human intelligence, insider threat, um, IT program management, intelligence community liaison, so many things. Um, spent two years, a little over two years at Deloitte, which was also a wonderful experience, and mm -hmm. then transitioned into an executive leadership role at GlaxoSmithKline. Amazing. So it's such an amazing career. You have uh, um, both kind of with your role with FBI and, and now with the corporate sector, I think you have so many different perspectives working for organizations of different scale and scope uh, and also different different challenges. I think it, it's, it's amazing. Uh, from your vantage point, I think you can see things uh, a lot more clearly than a lot, a lot of people who kind of, they, they go kind of one track and just, and just stay there. I think it's, um, congrats on an amazing career. Thank um, you. Certainly. So for, I know you probably uh, hear people talking that cybersecurity in general is just on the forefront uh, of so, so many organizations. And um, I think uh, it's a lot more talked about at the board meetings, at the C-level. And I think it's the, the tides are shifting. So uh, no one wants to be in the, in the news and the headlines in the, in the bad way. And I think there's just a lot more, not, not just awareness, but also willingness to put uh, effort and resources and budget behind uh, some of those um, some of those objectives. So naturally there was a lot more people thinking about transitioning into cybersecurity, maybe for, for more IT backgrounds or even students who are still colleges and universities looking to make a career in cybersecurity. So from your, based on your experience, what will be your advice for kind of maybe more junior professionals? What, what do you think they should focus on more? Uh, what are some of the things that you think they should do? I, I think there are two parts to what I would advise. The first part would be to really explore all your options. Um, cybersecurity is such a broad field and that's what makes it so wonderful. For example, you can have highly technical roles, moderately technical roles and completely non-technical roles and still be a cybersecurity professional. Mm -hmm. For example, cyber involves things like policy, compliance and audit. 
those are very important, somewhat overlooked roles. When people think of cybersecurity, they think of maybe the TV, the TV show iRobot or Mr. Robot. Yeah, yeah. Catching, catching hackers, catching the bad guys. Yeah, or, or yeah, just um, pounding away at a keyboard. Um, that, that's what people typically envision. But there are so many roles. There's training and development. There's strategic communications. There's developing strategy, right? Um, there are a lot of things that you can do in cyber. And one thing I would say, whether or not you're a cyber professional, is you select a career where it doesn't feel like you're working. If you can go to work every day and you feel like you're doing something you love, like it's one of your hobbies, but you happen to get paid for it, that's the best position to be in because you'll really thrive. What a great advice. It's actually, it's interesting that you say that because uh, um, I think a lot of people kind of think where can get the biggest paycheck? Uh, what's the kind of the coolest and more prestigious uh, career? But they don't realize it's something they would have to enjoy for years and years and years. So what do you say? I think it's actually resonates because we, we, we hear from other members. It's kind of the perspective that they bring to the table as well. Um, I'm actually very happy that, that you voiced that. Um, yeah, money, money is there in cyber. Um, the, there, there's um, a so-called perception of the so-called talent shortage, right? Um, money is there, right? Now, if you're looking for prestige, then you, know, then you have certain things that you need to do in your career. But I got to tell you, you're going to be, if you're lucky, you're going to be alive a long time. And you're going to be working a long time. So if you want to max out on that happiness factor in life, you want to choose wisely and it's okay to change your mind. I've changed my mind several times moving from you know, different programs to other programs in the FBI and beyond. Um, and that's another thing that makes it so wonderful. So the second, the second part of the advice, Misha, that I would give is very important. Um, so I'm going to say it carefully and intentionally. Many of us in cyber have not been traditionally groomed to be good communicators and or to care about the so what of the business. A lot of us are groomed to think that the more technical competency, competency we have and the more niche knowledge we have, that is what we should focus on. However, as you pointed out earlier in this conversation, C-suite and business, business executives now have cyber on the radar and they are asking, what do I get from you pounding that keyboard? You're asking me for money. What am I gonna get out of that investment? What's my ROI in investing in your business line in, in cybersecurity? I think it's important to remember today that cybersecurity is a business enabler, just like legal, just like recruiting and HR, just like contracts and procurement. Cybersecurity is a business enabler we are all around the table to support the people that make the widgets, that sell to customers, that gets the money to pay our salaries. We should not forget that. Absolutely. So, so it's, it's not just action and communication are key skills. Absolutely. It's 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 interesting you mentioned that. It's uh, I know some executives may view cybersecurity as a cost center, but yeah. at the end of the day, if uh, if the entire operation is bricked, as they say, by ransomware. That's that's the end of the business. So if if if, uh, exe if executives are not aware of the risks and the implications of those risks, and it's on cybersecurity executives to communicate those risks, then um, it's 
this kind of show-stopping event. And and uh, I think communication. Oh, totally agree. Totally understand. But I don't think we should let that feed the ego. There's enough. There's enough ego um, in cyber because they're very smart, highly technical people. True. So I I would caution. Um, I would caveat that heavily. Yes. If, if we do not secure the, the operation, the business, it could stop the business, but we shouldn't let that um, get in the way of us being partners to the business leaders. Absolutely. Absolutely. We shouldn't allow it to foster um, a bit of arrogance there. See, traditionally, and what I've seen in my journey is that cybersecurity professionals have a somewhat adversarial relationship with business people in the, in the same organization. And that is what the adversaries enjoy. It's interesting. I, mean, I think it's a theme that we actually hear from uh, with other injuries as well. And I think it's, it's also, um, it takes changing uh, the mind, uh, mind, it's a little bit of a mind shift because oftentimes to your point that are so relationships is that the business leaders see when they bring a new idea, um, uh, an innovation they're working on, uh, a new initiative, they fear that if they bring cybersecurity, they'll, they'll, they'll hear no, mm-hmm. we, cannot, we cannot do that. And I think what a lot of CISOs that we uh, talked to, they said, the correct approach is this, yes, we can do this. However, these are the things we need to consider as well as part of this initiative. So it's not a no, it's, it's yes, but, which, which is a little bit different. I think it's kind of semantics, but I think it's uh, for cybersecurity, it's on cybersecurity executives to see themselves as enablers, as you mentioned, not as kind of uh, um, someone who you know, stops the progress, I guess, uh, and becomes a, an impediment to kind of business goals. So I, I take that a little bit further and, um, and more functionally. Um, and this something in my career that I heard really made up my mind that I was doing the right thing. There is a um, a senior leader that I recall in the FBI. And, um, you know, one day I was in a meeting with him and and several others. And he said something like, it's my job to lay across the tracks and stop the the program. And inwardly I cringed, I cringed. Literally, I don't know what, what it was about that particular day or statement, but I will not forget that. And then I watched everyone react to what he said and react to him after that for the rest of his time in the organization. And I decided that my workplace persona would never be anywhere close to that. So my tactic and technique, my TTP is this. Someone comes to me and says that they want to do something. A business person says, I want to do something. And, and, and of course, um, if I'm managing the policies and rules, they're going to say, am I allowed to do that? I won't answer that question because that's not my role, right? If I'm the purveyor of the information, then it's my job to share the information with you, not to answer whether or not you're allowed to do that. That's for the risk executive to, to decide. So here's what I do. <clears throat> First of all, if you say, I want to do this, I try to unpack what this really is because sometimes people think of an end and you can accomplish things with multiple in multiple ways. 
So I really uh, get in there, communicate with them and figure out exactly what they're trying to accomplish. What is this? What is this that you want to do, right? Then I take a look at, at the requirements and the compliance, uh, the rules, regulations, policies. And if it, if it turns out that this doesn't seem to fit in there, we're continuing the conversation. Perhaps there's another way we could do this, but it's in compliance and it's safe. And then if we hit a wall there, well, here's what I do next, right? I still haven't said no. What I do is I say, listen, I'm gonna help you fill out the paperwork for the uh, exception request and we'll go to the executive together. I'll sit right next to you, you can explain and we'll see what they say. Absolutely. It's, and it's, at, at no time have I, A, said no, B, stopped being a partner. And even if the ultimate answer is no, even if no one, the decision maker in the, in the business does not want to accept the risk, that relationship between me and the requester is solid because they know that I'm not an impediment. And, and if we exhaust all the possibilities, I'm mm -hmm. still going to go with you to the decision maker. I'll sit next to you. They have questions, I'll answer. But you will present your case. And I'm with you. Absolutely. So it's almost like it sounds um, when they they describe what is that they want. You you want to understand why they're they're what what is the end goal? And it takes a lot of empathy, which is what you talked about. Which absolutely, which is um, I think it's amazing uh, skill set for someone with a technical background. It's uh, but I think something that will, that will will get someone out kind of a long way. Um, that's awesome. Switching gears a little bit, Julie, again, uh, from kind of your vantage point and given your experience, if you think, I know these days people talk about various kind of top of mind issues, whether it's ransomware, phishing attacks, cloud security. But if, if you kind of look into the future, I know six months from now, 12 months from now, what, what top three issues you think will be top of mind? For, for CISOs uh, and, kind of, and other cybersecurity executives, whether kind of corporate, federal, state, local, kind of across the board, what would they be? Um, if your time box is about, you said about a year, right? Um, so within the next 12 months, I think that we all need to remember as cyber leaders that cyber criminals are now well-funded and highly organized. We were just starting to see that at the end of 2020. It really took off in 2021. And I think that should be the baseline expectation. I, I wanna say that again, cyber criminals are now well-funded. They can afford zero day exploits, they can afford to buy those. And they are highly organized and agile, right? Whereas most of us in the, in the cyber life are not yet agile, not yet embracing those things. Um, we have a lot of silos inside of our organizations and amongst ourselves. Um, the cyber criminals don't have that. If they can partner with, with someone un unconventional to make money, they will. Right. And they'll also sell their criminality as a service. That is a, a term that I coined. I know I've heard ransomware as a service, but I'm expanding it to criminality as a service, which will cover ransomware, extortion, and others. It's a thing. It's a business, right? The second thing is, is that the lines between nation state actors and the cyber criminals are getting blurry. So for example, you could have someone working um, for a nation state um, organization by day and then by night, they're in a ransomware gang and it's the same TTP, you know, in general. The second thing is, um, or the, the third thing is, is that 
um, when you talk about risk, you, you can talk about like cyber risk and you can quantify it financially and here's a way. Um, the fines and penalties that are related to data protection, um, they're gonna get bigger because globally countries are um, enacting le legislation for consumer data protection. You see that in China, Russia's gonna do that. Um, the US, yeah, but I really feel like I, eyes on China for that because like it seems like every other month there's a new China cybersecurity law or data protection or something like that. Sure. Um, I wanna add a fourth. Um, one tool that, that some companies use is cyber liability insurance to transfer away risk. But the thing about it is um, the premiums are getting higher and the coverage is getting lower and more focused and scoped. So we, we really need to be thinking about how we can become more agile. So I'm gonna say zero trust um, is a good thing to think about. Um, taking another look at encryption because quantum computing, IBM cracked the code on quantum computing uh, late last year. So it's, it's, I'm going to say it's about three to five years before the criminals get a hold of it and they can de defeat the regular encryption. We all need to be thinking agile, how we can work together. And we, we probably need to have empathy and think like some of these criminals so we can anticipate what they may try and not just be so focused on our own little silo. Those are, those are my contributions to your question. No, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting. Um, just to unpack this a little bit, especially the last one, uh, we're hearing that, yes, the premium is getting higher on the insurance, but also the, the field is getting thinned out because organiza insurance organizations is pulling back because the, the potential liability is so huge and potentially unquantifiable. They can't even put a number of, they don't, it's not the business. Some of them decide that's not the business we want to be in. So that, that's the other thing too. We may see a shrinkage of the market there. Like, but one thing that's interesting is like the um, you know, the stipulations and some of the some of the policies, like I've seen people online saying that uh, they didn't want to cover log4j. So they they said they wrote that out, you know. Now, of course, I'm not talking about anything with GSK, I'm not talking about any current or past employer. I'm just saying what I see as I as I navigate the community because I'm very very much invested in understanding the latest and greatest what goes on. So I'm always on LinkedIn. I'm always on the news feeds, and I'm just telling you that I've seen reports that they're writing out certain things like log4j or nation state attack. It's like wow. Then why do I have the insurance? You know, <laughs> so <laughs> they can be so small that it's almost yeah, it's not sense. worth. It. It's almost you know, is it going to be worth it? But they have to stay in business too, right? Absolutely. And a lot of this again is a result of like the good guys not necessarily optimizing how they work together, how they communicate, leveraging um, knowledge from each other. The nice thing is there are organizations like the information sharing um, centers like HISAC, FISAC, where different, different organizations within a sector can get together and share information, be on an email chain together, mm -hmm. um, talk about solutions to commonly faced problems. Would love to see more of that. That is amazing. Um, I got to attend um, an Intel summit with HISAC last year, mm -hmm. and I learned so much and met my, my peers in, in the community. I want to see more of that. It helps us defeat the criminals. Absolutely, and it's actually it's one of the things that I'm as we're kind of building Afinia and kind of talking about community. What you learn from peers and the support that you get from peers is not something you, 
something you can get from vendors even that that you pay money uh, to. But if you have a question, you need an immediate answer. Reaching out to someone you know personally, you can get the answer from a someone you tr whose opinion you trust, not biased. Someone who's in the same industry maybe faced those issues before. It's so incredibly valuable because time is of, of the essence. You mentioned agility. That this, I think, where the agility is going to come from when professionals that are shared, uh, they have shared challenges and shared experience, but some of them have dealt already with certain issues. Some of them have knowledge to share. I think making sure, kind of spreading that knowledge and spreading that that insight is will be paramount to to stay in agile. Absolutely. And again, talking about community, um, since we're in this topic, um, talking about Afinia, if, if you were to say, I like Afinia because, how would you finish that, that sentence? And, and kind of in the same vein, what are the things, uh, maybe face-to-face -face events we're, we're, that we're definitely doing this year? Uh, what are some of the things that you think we can do more of or less of? Um, I like the platform. I, I explored the website. I really like it. It's easy to use, um, easy to meet other people that maybe could help with information or other people that I could provide support to or just network with. Um, I like the emails. I enjoy receiving the emails where we see people newly appointed to a CISA role. Um, I really like seeing that. Um, and I like the sense of community. Um, I, I would love to have more live meetings when COVID is not so prominent. Um, you know, different geographical areas would be nice, East Coast, West Coast, so that different people could show up live whenever they want. Um, maybe a plan for it, maybe in the beginning of the year, a published event uh, schedule so mm -hmm. that people can block off their calendars and make plans to attend would be nice. Certainly. Um, and do you think kind of in this vein, do you think it would make sense more kind of informal social events, um, I don't know, dinners of, of sorts, uh, or do you think it's more kind of getting an interesting speaker or panel, uh, someone with perspective, um, with this kind of short presentation and then have a social uh, part portion of the event? Maybe, what are your thoughts on that? You've got a little party going on in your background. <laughs> Like <laughs> um, yeah, I think a, I think a mix would make sense if you're looking at something quarterly. It, it could be, um, you know, maybe the the big event or the conference is uh, once a year, but then um, the less formal gatherings could be once a quarter. It gives mm -hmm. people a chance to meet each other live, and then maybe once a month it's a Zoom call. So you know, make it easy, but just kind of a mix so that people can ebb and flow as they need mm -hmm. to. Certainly. And then if it's published in advance, people can go, well, no, this is my affinity of time. I'm going to block this off, you know. Makes sense. Makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, I think giving people kind of advance notice makes, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I think we're coming up on time. A um, couple last, last questions. One is, um, well, cybersecurity in general is, is an evolving um, area. There's always something new, new uh, threat vectors, new technologies, new kind of point of view. Um, where do you go to learn about things again, emerging, uh, whether it's a new technology or emerging kind of threat vectors, what, how do you get up to speed about all things new in cybersecurity? Um, there, there are a number of channels um, from the very simple and automated to the live. 
So for example, if I'm, if I'm nerding out on a specific topic of the moment, um, I will set up a Google alert for it. And it only takes three or four days before I'm like, I'm the one with the latest knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it's like sandwich bites. For example, if I set up a Google alert for blockchain, right? Immediately every day, I'll get news alerts and information about blockchain. And I can take 10 minutes while I'm, while I'm stretching or drinking mm -hmm. tea mm -hmm. to read it. And that's like a 10 minute investment over the course of a couple of days. And then all of a sudden I have top of my, my knowledge for blockchain. Absolutely. So that's very simple and automated, low time investment, high impact as far mm -hmm. as knowledge base. Um, more time investment and more energy, especially because I'm an introvert, is joining industry groups and actually socializing with people and having conversations. Mm -hmm. So those are the two, it's you know different spectrum of ways but I like the combination of it. So. I understand. And um, do you get feedback on vendors as well through kind of those channels, through kind of the community? That's part of the industry groups. I mean, some of the industry groups have um, uh, vendors present, um, not hardcore sales pitches or anything, just like, hey, this is what we're working on. What do you think? And then that gives me more topics to do um, searches on and automatic news feeds on, right? Um, but it, for me, it's like a blend of like the automatic type of news feeds, um, the industry events, which could in, include vendor presentations, mm -hmm. roundtable discussions, um, even prepping for a roundtable discussion. You'll find something you didn't know yesterday because that's how cyber is. And that's part of why I love it. Awesome. Awesome. And um, so you've, you've educated yourself about certain technology or certain um, kind of area. And now there is a kind of a business need and you're selecting vendors. And for some of those um, areas, dozens if not hundreds of different vendors, how do you kind of shrink you know, those dozens of vendors to a short list? I know some people use Gartner or G2Crowd or uh, um, attend like, demos or white papers. Again, networking, what's, what's your preferred method um, of, of selecting the um, top Yep. Again, not speaking on behalf of any current or past employers. However, if I'm thinking about this logically, I probably use a blend of all of those things that you're talking about. For example, like let's say you know someone that's in government, they have access. They have access to um, ratings on vendors. Um, you know, so and there's this whole apparatus, you know, of selection. There's a lot of rules around that. Maybe in the private industry, it's a little bit different, a little less stringent but you may look at something like past performance, reputation. Um, you may check your, your network, um, but you'll have, to me, you should have fair and open competition. Mm -hmm. You should put out a proposal and then um, evaluate what comes back fairly, dispassionately, analytically. I really believe in fairness because if we keep dipping in the same wells, we're ultimately hurting the industry because will starve companies that want to be involved too, right? We'll keep going back to the same source. So to me, it's like you put out your RFP, you see what comes back, you check around, you go to their site, you look at their list of previous customers, you, you know, all of this due diligence, right? But it should all be fair and above board. That's how I see it. Absolutely. Last question. Assuming the bad guy's not going to go away for, for a while, but if you had a magic wand and if you could change one thing about cybersecurity, what, what would it be? Oh man, just one thing? One thing. 
ah, uh, the, the good guys would be more agile. Just as agile as the criminals or just 25% more agile. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I think, Billy, this was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I think this was, uh, this was an amazing interview. I, I really appreciate it. Awesome.